everybody. Welcome to the Disciple Makers Podcast brought to you by discipleship.org. I'm your host, Dave Stovall, and we've been working our way through global discipleship initiatives, track sessions from our forum from last year. This episode, we've got Greg Ogden and Dave Shanuel continuing to teach us about the difference between a program-based church and a disciple-making church. So today's episode hones in on the personal invitation aspect. And I've realized the power of the personal invitation by watching my leaders just simply asking the question, even if it's a little bit awkward. They've gotten really great men to be a part of their small groups that I thought were just simply closed off to the small group thing just by asking them to join. And then, you know what? They were ready for it and I had no idea. Let's listen to Greg and Dave encourage us and teach us some things that we don't know and push us out of our comfort zone and personally inviting people into these discipling relationships. Enjoy the episode. So we've chosen this focus of overcoming four major obstacles to making reproducing disciples. We tackled the first one in our last session, which was growing a disciple-making culture. How do you develop the practices and traditions and values that actually support a movement of, of disciple-making uh, to create that momentum that you want to have and the energy that's connected to it? And today we'll take a look at this one. Uh, we think we can make disciples through programs, apparently, because we do a lot of programs. And so we're going to talk about whether that's possible or not, and uh, actually contrast programmatic disciple-making with relational disciple-making. So what does that look like when we get started? Next two sessions, uh, uh, later this morning, we'll be overcoming the multiplication conundrum. Uh, I think that's probably the conundrum, and that is... Uh, how do you make disciples? Who actually make disciples? How do you carry it on from one generation to the next? That seems to be always the, the bugaboo uh, that is difficult to do. And we will share some thoughts about how to do that and some success stories that uh, we can share. But we're here as kind of a think group, too. We're going to share our own insights and things that we have <clears throat> learned along the way. <clears throat> so we are not going to set ourselves up as ones who have discovered everything, all the truth, and then pass them on to you. But... I'm sure you've got some answers as well. So number four is addressing the myth that only the elite uh, can make disciples, be disciple makers. Uh, so is there kind of a special forces of disciple makers that only a few can do? Uh, well, we're going to try to say no. We has an approach that kind of puts the cookies on the bottom shelf that almost anybody can do in terms of how to, how to create this. Okay, so let's get into this particular topic for the day. And uh, so obstacles stated, what are we, what are we trying to tackle here? Uh, that we have tended to substitute programs for a relationally based approach of making disciples. So, uh, so I want to start with a, a case study and I'm going to get you right involved uh, right from the start here because I want you to help flesh out what this obstacle is that we are, are dealing with. So here's the case study. Uh, so how many pastors do we have in the room? We've got a, a few. Uh, but I ordain all of you as pastors for the moment. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so as a pastor, you're approached by an eager newcomer to your congregation. They ask you, uh, I want to be a well-grounded follower of Christ, and I also want to uh, help others learn how to be followers of Christ as well. Uh, can you tell me what your plan is for that at this church? Hmm. That would be an interesting uh, question to be asked. So I want you to get in little groups of two or three and uh, answer that question for your own church setting. 
What's your plan for making disciples at your church or your ministry? I know we have parachurch ministry represented here, so won't just make it exclusive to, to the church setting. And uh, so talk about that. How would you answer this person uh, if they approached you? So find, if you need to turn chairs around, Evans and others, uh, feel free to get connected and talk a bit about that. Okay, let me jump in here and see where you are. Uh, anybody willing to uh, share what your answer would be to this person who would approach you about what's your plan for making disciples at your church? Okay, yeah. Just because uh, at our church, we wind up, uh, uh, if, they, if it feels like they've gone through the process of accepting Christ and they're connected and they're, they're seeking a way to grow, then we'll get involved in a discipleship group with a curriculum and a schedule and uh, so okay. forth. Okay. So that's the primary focus to make sure you get people well-grounded immediately. And that's great. Good. Thank you. Any other, th any other thoughts? Yeah. Well, our, we had a group from our church come to this conference last week. So last we, year. Last year. So for the past year, we've been, you know, we've been trying to work this out. Our pastor has preached, um, about discipleship this past year. Okay. For the whole thing, right? Yeah. And we chose um, your book as what we would use and so choice, what we would So we've slowly been, been able to, I think we went from uh, 9 to how many? 9 to 33. 33 right. discipleship groups. 9 to 33 groups? No, no. That's right. Um, our, Start small, go slow, right, think big, right? It, okay. It's, it's a slow process, but we're moving right Yeah, that's right. It's a slow process and intended to be. You don't microwave disciples. Right? Yeah. yeah. It'd be nice if you could. Uh, but uh, but it, took, it took Jesus actually like three years to get <laughs> yes. fishermen. Yeah into the thought process of discipleship. Right. So Take heart. It was slow for him. Yeah. Take heart, yeah. 120, uh, you know, all he had to show for. <laughs> Even Jesus had a challenge there in terms of in, investing in, in a few. Okay, so you know, I think, you know, generally what I would say, most people would respond in some, something like this. Uh, I think people will start listing the activities in their church in terms of the things that you do. Uh, we preach biblical and expository sermons in our church. We have Bible studies, men's and women's. We hold some seminars on various discipleship topics like financial peace or marriage enrichment. We have Alpha for evangelism, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. People will oftentimes say, well, this is the conglomerate of things that we do that actually is our disciple-making process, but it's not necessarily terribly focused. So what do I mean by programs? Uh, by programs, I mean the structured group methods that we use to herd people through systems. Is that a pretty pejorative definition? <laughs> set, set myself up. So, you know, success is measured by how many people kind of move through your offerings and what you have to there. Okay, okay, we got this many people in our discipleship group or Bible studies, that kind of thing. Uh, George Marta uh, gives this critique of programs. They're often embraced as a way of organizing large groups of people in an orderly process that can easily be managed and controlled. If we were to be honest, we would have to admit that the absence of real measures of personal growth, our testimony to our concern about style more than substance, our commitment to taking action more than impact. So 
And so the big question is why aren't programs, why don't programs actually do what we are hoping they will do? What's, and what's the, what are their characteristics with the nature of programs? So here's my four descriptors of what programs are. They tend to be information or knowledge-based. We transfer content uh, theologically to one person to another. I, I mentioned this yesterday, but my position when I was at Christ Church in Oak Brook, Illinois, uh, as executive pastor of discipleship, I came to the church, and their primary focus uh, there was to get an ordained pastor, stand him up in front of a class, and teach biblical doctrine, you know, as if that was the way to get people to have some kind of transformational experience. And so when I came uh, to the church, there was one of the classes that was without a pastor because that pastor had, had retired. And so they recruited me to come and, and teach them. And the, the format essentially was the pastor would stand up in front of the class on a Sunday morning. People were kind of there in a space, but were not really talking with each other because there was not much sense of community or connection relationally to one another. And then would maybe make a couple of announcements about activities or whatever, and then teach for 45 minutes in a monologue, and then send them away till next Sunday, uh, and hopefully that something was going to happen in that process. So information transfer, I, I call it taking the full picture of, of a teacher and pouring it into the empty picture of the student and trying to transfer our content. Uh, John Orberg kind of has mused over the fact that two people can believe doctrinally the same thing, um, but actually be very different in terms of the character and out, outward. So you can have some, a person that's gracious, kind, gentle, and loving. Uh, another person who's judgmental, rigid, brittle, and prickly. <laughs> they say they believe the same things, but their outcomes are very different in terms of the nature of their life. So we can be very focused on knowledge-based content in terms of programs. Programs are, are one, preparing for the many. Uh, now, the paradigm for this, of course, is preaching on a Sunday morning, right? So those of you who are preachers, you know, spend a good portion of your week getting ready for Sunday or Saturday, depending upon when your services are. Uh, maybe you have put 15 to 20 hours into that preparation. Uh, the congregation is expecting you to deliver the goods uh, on Sunday morning. And... Uh, and we believe somehow that that's going to make disciples by preaching in a, in a congregation. So I just asked this question. Uh, what level of commitment is required for those sitting in the pew? 40 minutes every week. you gotta show, you got, you got to show up. you know, you got to be there. Um, so um, what opportunities are there to either respond or apply the content? Yeah. With, with Zoom and online church, you don't even have to do that. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Now that we've kind of gotten used to that mode of, of delivery in terms of after the after the pandemic so a lot of people are still sitting in front of the tv you're right so, so there's no no requirement at all besides just listening um what opportunities are there to even respond reply what is preached on a sunday morning usually you got the closing benediction and you're up out of your seat and then you're maybe having a quick conversation with people by the time you get to the parking lot what do you remember not much uh so here's my two controversial statements. If we could have made disciples by preaching at people, the job would have been done a long time ago. And even the greatest preacher who ever lived did not rely on his preaching to make disciples who relied on relationship. Now, now we're delighted that Jesus gave a lot of teaching. We can study it and we have it in the New Testament. Um, but that's not where he relied. In fact, he actually was suspicious of the crowds, was he not? 
um, you know, because they would come for the healings and all the demonstrations of power. And it says at the end of John chapter 2 that Jesus did not entrust himself to them because he knew what was in all people. They, they could be with you one moment and gone the next, you know, in terms of the, that whole call. So the, the focus there. Programs are characterized uh, by regimentation or synchronization. Um, so you advertise a what? 10 week program of discipleship. You stand up in front of the church and you announce it and you all sign up for the program. And, but you have to sort of walk lockstep through the program one at a time that doesn't take into account it, customization or individuality in terms of where people are in their discipleship process. Uh, you're just completing the work going through it a step at a time. I'm sure you can, you're picking stuff up. I'm obviously being a little caricaturing here and being a little bit overly critical, uh, but I think that's generally the case, that, uh, that you have that kind of march through a, a, a system. Barnard says, few churches intentionally guide their people through a strategic learning and developmental process that has been customized for the student. And when we, when we come to the kind of the other side of this, when we talk about relational disciple making, we want to create environments where people can be known and can share who they are and offer um, their life to each other around the truth of God's word. So uh, to go on, making disciples requires a customized approach. This means that the person's knowledge, growth and character, personal challenges, obedience and thought, word and deed, discernment of unique ministry identity, and so on, are all need to be dealt with in the context of Jesus' radical claim upon an individual's life in a setting of community. So we'll get to, to that a little bit more. And then last thing here is uh, programs uh, focus on content accountability rather than life change accountability. So did you complete the work in the workbooks? Did you come with your lessons done? Uh, and let's check out, oh, did you get that scripture memorized? That kind of thing. Um, versus... What kind of change in Christ-likeness is happening in people's lives? That's what we, if we can measure that, that's what at least one we, wants, we want to be the focus or the target of what people are, are doing. Will Mancini has written a book recently called uh, Future Church, and he has a very helpful image here when it comes to our understanding of, of program. And... Uh, so he's, the title of this particular chapter on future church is the best picture to expose North America's greatest challenge. Uh, so he envisions the church as kind of a uh, lower story, upper story, and basically says this is where most churches spend all of their time. We're involved in essentially an assimilation process. We want to get people assimilated, connected to the life of the church so they, they won't leave. <laughs> so they come, stay, and feel uh, satisfied with what's going on. Now, you would say, we want to do a great job at these, these things, place, personality, programs, and people. Uh, but what we have ignored is the upper part. But let me go through the lower part first. So we've had a lot of emphasis on assimilating, getting people into the life and connected to the life of, of the church. And we usually focus on these four Ps as a way of doing it. One is, first one is place, of course, and that is uh, tying people, in a sense, the physical structure of the church. So where it's located, your, your feeling about the facilities that you're in. Uh, he says in this particular section, we make our places and our places make us. Um, so you know, we get shaped by those. And so people come to associate church with a facility, with a location. 
you really know that when the church is starting to talk about, oh, we're, we're going to relocate. Ever been in a con- context of where that happens and what furor takes place? Because the association with a place has taken, and oftentimes that's quite natural because maybe people have had some strong spiritual experiences in the context of that space and met Christ there in a way and had a sense where now they, I met Jesus here and this is the place where it's occurred. And so there is that association. Secondly, personality. Uh, we're talking about here, particularly the personality of the leader. Uh, maybe a skilled communicator, you know, great in biblical wisdom. Uh, maybe a pastor with a compassionate heart that helps people feel connected to each other. So, and oftentimes then the church gets very much associated with this particular charismatic leader, perhaps, or great communicator. Oh, I go to pastor so-and-so's church. You know, so the association of possession of the church by, by, the, by the pastor. Um, so uh, in fact, um, when one pastors who had been a pastor of a particular church for 20 years announced that he had had Parkinson's uh, uh, to the church. And he said over the next four months, uh, 10% reduction in church attendance occurred because of that. And his comment was, oh, people like a winner. Uh, evidently, you can't be a winner if you have Parkinson's. Uh, so that association with the person then gets diminished because something has happened in that, that person's life. Uh, programs. We were talking about that. So we're offering a whole, whole slew of programs and people get associated with, with a program. Maybe it's a BSF, maybe it's AWANA um, in terms of a program that connects people. Midweek Bible studies. And so people, I feel, included because they're a part of this particular program. And again, I'm not going to negate these things as important because, again, Will Munson would say, yeah, we want to do a great job at all this. Uh, but what happens is we miss the upper level. And then, of course, the last level here is people. Uh, I know there's a huge emphasis at one time in the whole church growth context of yeah, if you have deep connections with seven people in your church, um, then you will stay. <laughs> you know? So try to maximize the number of relationships. Well, you know, we all want good relationships. And I, you know, I certainly have stayed in my church because I have great relationships uh, there. And so that the connectedness is important. But what he says is we've neglected this, the upper room. Uh, and the fifth P is purpose, connected to a disciple-making purpose that is bigger than any one of these individual needs. How do we get connected to that, that higher order uh, of things? So um, and that, I'm going to ask uh, Dave to come up now and kind of share a little bit about that uh, through. Do you want me to leave, leave this here for now? Yeah, for okay. a moment. Thank yeah. you. Good morning. Dave Chanuel is uh, our national director for, for GDI. I'm delighted to have him on and uh, is developing. Uh, well, we'll hear more about that too in terms of developing your s- scheme throughout the Midwest. Scheme. Yeah, I'm a schemer. You're a schemer. <laughs> Your approach. Well, ask my wife for 41 years. She'll, she'll tell you that. No, I was just sharing with my little micro group over here earlier that uh, three weeks ago I started my 14th micro group. Um, full year, once a week for a full year. My last group went 16, 18 months. Steve Alonzo had been in that group. And. Um, I want you to write down six words. So grab your pen. 
Write down these words. Your mission is what you measure. Your mission is what you measure. Your written mission statement may say one thing. However, your, in actuality, your mission is what you're measuring. Go ahead and bring up. Here's an image that we use in helping churches transition their culture. Uh, work with pastors in doing this as they're developing microgroups and like your church from nine people to 35? 33. 33. Guys, that's in 12 months. Isn't that incredible? Good job, guys. That's excellent. Job well done. Well, here's an image of a church that operates from the upper room, using Will Mancini's uh, language. For example, staff, leadership team, they meet. Their gathering is not about nickels and noses, about giving and attendance. It's not about events or programs. The key element in the meeting of the leadership in a disciple-making church is this. It is the movement of people. Don't forget that. Now, I'm not talking about out the back door. We've got enough of that. That doesn't take a whole lot of effort. But it does take intentionality to be focusing on the movement of people. And here's an example of what we use. Each of these, spiritual infancy, spiritual adolescence, young adulthood, spiritual parenting, don't worry about the, the classes that are needed. This was written for a church, okay? But, um, and you'll see some of our material. We talked about transforming discipleship. That's, that's in this area. Spiritual parenting is where the um, transforming discipleship and uh, discipleship initiative comes. That's the key um, process that we use, that I've used for 14 years, right? Starting from the bottom of this image, spiritual infancy. A church operating from the upper room asks, who are we moving from spiritual infancy to spiritual adolescence? The ultimate goal is that we are growing all of our believers into what? Spiritual parents, where they are doing what? Reproducing themselves, right? The the church who has adopted the disciple-making culture is not satisfied with just getting people in the front door and adding a few classes along the way. They have a higher purpose, and that's Will Mancini's. That's your higher call, your higher purpose. There's a higher purpose in raising up spiritual infants to spiritual adolescence to spiritual parenting, i.e., Making disciples who make disciples. Folks, um, was that, Lord, was that you in, the, in our breakout session uh, yesterday when you asked how do you measure success? It wasn't me. It was somebody. Was question. That was you, Evan. Outstanding question. The upper level or the upper room, the disciple-making church, how they answer that question, how they measure success is are the disciples we're making doing what? Making disciples. Making disciples. 
and those old disciples making disciples. That is, everything else takes care of itself. You don't have to worry about attendance. You don't have to worry about giving. You're growing people in the image of Christ. And they're generally going to just, they're good again. All right, that makes sense? Excellent, excellent question. Uh, key concepts in a disciple-making church. Relationships, as Greg's already mentioned today. Not ritual. Process, not programs. And here's a big transformation, not information. You see, those whom God entrusts to your church, they need to become emotionally, physically, and even more important, spiritually, attached to a sense of purpose much bigger than a place, a personality, a program, even the people. That sense of purpose has to be shaped by the Great Commission, by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Never forget that. A church that, and Greg shared this, a church that is built around the lower room, if it doesn't have an upper room, you're never going to get out of this lower room. You're going to continue. It's all attractional, right? Bringing people, attractional. And what you're going to do is measuring attendance and measuring giving. However, a church operating out of the upper room, you're measuring how are we making disciples who are making disciples. You're measuring the believers that you're bringing in from this level. We're not saying it's both and, but you bring meaning to the lower room when you have the upper room. All right? And so, who are you reaching for Christ? How are you assimilating them into the mouth of God's word and growing them up to be spiritual? All right? This is exactly what the Apostle Paul said to young Timothy. He modeled it, and he taught it. What did he say? 2 Timothy 2.2. Timothy, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to do what? Teach others also. Paul was always thinking about the next, third, the fourth generation, and that's how we need to focus our attention as a church, looking ahead. That's an upper room church. Yeah. Any, any questions? Comments? Yeah, I'm just thinking as far as the measurement goes <coughs> on the, the disciples that are making disciples, would a good kind of measurement be um, the outlet of testimony? Of, of, you know, like, that that's a part of the culture of people who are giving their testimony of how they're becoming changed. Sure. You know, because that's yeah. something that you can see. And, and what a beautiful way to worship God. That there's as many lay people sharing as there is the pastor. Yeah. Because you're fleshing out what God is doing in there. That's, that's excellent. What's your name? Brad. Brad. Thank you, Dave. Appreciate and, it. And just real quick, what you just said, when you do those public displays of passing the baton, <clears throat> what an inspiration it is for other people to be like, what's going on here? 
That's the, I want to be a part of that, right? I mean, that again, doing that outlook, you'll start to see people who want to be a part of something. Because as they say yesterday, at first it was like a small group where people were just like, what's going on here, right? But as soon as you do that, damn, people yeah. want to be a part of something really good and great. Yeah, so, yeah, go ahead. One quick question. You had uh, three comparisons. One was transformation, not information, process, not program. What was the first one? Some about relationships? No, good, good question. It's um, relationships, not ritual. Yeah. Good. Other? That was same. Back row has the same question. Yeah, from a practical perspective, yeah. um, with this, um, what if on a Sunday morning when we do a baptism, we have a new believer. What if we have in the baptistry one or two of the people that were instrumental in bringing that person to Christ right. and we celebrate good. that? Yeah. And then we kind of, I mean, this is just me thinking off the top of my head, but yeah. is that what we're talking about? Sure. Yeah, I mean, that'd be a good creative conversation to have here in terms of what what is it that you want to uphold in front of the congregation. So uh, when we're talking about reproducing microgroups, then we want to honor the people that have completed that process and then are starting the new ones. And that's where we do the baton pass up in front of the congregation. We're acknowledging, okay, somebody's gone through the process. Now it's accepting a responsibility to pass the baton on to somebody else. And you're reinforcing it in the presence of the congregation. What's your mission is all about. You're reinforcing the upper room uh, experience. And going back to Brad and then you're tapping into that baptism you're fleshing out how they're responding to god and you're celebrating that as a church yeah. what we do with in our in our midwest region we're passing and we're all across the board we're tom that uh, we're referring to is when well, <coughs> just a month ago steve alonzo finished his first micro group and um he made the commitment and he's already you start Monday? Monday's my group. Sorry. With your group, with three three men in this church. Well, we passed a baton to him in our quarterly microgroup meeting, and um, that's a celebration. Now, when his church gets to that point, they're, they're moving that direction. We usually wait second or third generation. This is an organic thing. Uh, very important, pastors, that you lead out on this. You model it. You're celebrating publicly right here. You've celebrated baptism here and here. You're celebrating God moving in their life, passing on to the time. So find ways to continue to celebrate on Sunday mornings or during your worship time what God is doing in your lay people's life. That's what they'll remember. Yes. Hey, can I ask you guys one question? The, the passing of the baton, how do you know when it's time to pass the baton? Well, it's primarily when somebody completes their process with a, a microgroup and they are now ready to start their own. So our our tool, in a sense, I guess the context in which we talk about people making disciples is a group of three or four. And it's a it's a year to year and a half long process. We use discipleship essentials as the curriculum. And once they complete that process and already assume responsibility to invite the, that next generation into relationship, that, that it's at that point that we want to help them say, okay, you're, you are passing the baton from Paul to Timothy, in a sense, at that <laughs> point, and uh, then reinforcing that in front of the church. Great. Yeah.
Yes. And there's, there's, we'll talk about this in the next session, but one critical component of that microgroup process is that built into that Discipleship Essentials curriculum is training of that individual. By, by week five, you're starting to rotate a, a facilitator role, leadership role. A, a, after lesson eight, there's a review of the covenant. It, a part of this, this is very important. It's tied directly to your question, how do you know they're ready? They're ready. It's, it's part of the curriculum. Week eight, you're reviewing the covenant and you're reminding them of their commitment to prayerfully consider consider starting a group of their own upon completion. At, at week at uh, session 16, you're doing the same thing again. So you rotated. You the part of the role of the convener, the facilitator. We don't even, we don't even like to call them leader, because the idea then is I'm the teacher, you're the students. It's it's the, the textbook. Is, is the curriculum, the Holy Spirit's the teacher. So they, they come Amen. to know that. So I just wanted to, to, to nail that down. They're ready. Yes. They're ready. Well, talk to Steve Alonzo's talk. Talk to Stravitz. Steve, I don't think we even got to the fifth lesson. And Steve said, I already know who I want to invite. He said, just hang on. We'll get there. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, <clears throat> yes. Um, I, I love this idea. I mean, I, the idea of taking a uh, intentional um, process of, of growing disciple makers, and and that's that's always the goal. That's always been my goal. Um, here's my here's my dilemma. Um, Jesus took three years and twelve disciples, right? And he really poured into three of them, right? And at the end, yeah, right, Jesus had a micro group, by the way. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. So, so you you say to the elders in your church, the lead pastor in your church, hey, I want to take a year or a year and a half and develop these three people. Yeah. And and we get this is the response. Who is going to go through that for a year and a half? And we need results. Now, not in a year and a half. We, yeah. Can you show them results can now? You shorten them will fall apart next and, week. Yeah, and and, <laughs> and it's like, well, I could shorten it. Yeah, but if I shorten it, the results are not going to be what you want them yeah. to be. Well, that's a good transition to my next topic. Okay. Uh, so, what's Jesus, what's the model that we need to follow from the New Testament in terms of how disciples are made? Absolutely. Okay. So. I could take us through some little teaching on that, but let's just stipulate that, you know, Luke chapter 6, verses 12 and 13, which says that Jesus spent all night in prayer. The next day he called his disciples to him. From that group of larger group of disciples, he chose 12 to be his apostles with whom he then spent a major part of his ministry for the rest of his time, right? And invested in them and uh, over. So, uh, yeah, it, it is a paradigm shift in people's minds. Uh, the word disciple... The word discipline are kind of are connected to each other. And we settle for this short-term fix of stuff. Oh, we can't have any classes longer than six weeks because we can't pe have people ha want to have retention span to last long. Well, if that's the case, well, just give it up. I mean, serious, why be, why be a church on mission? If, if you can't get people to have a sustained focus throughout, you're, you're talking about discipleship as a lifetime adventure right and uh, so it's not just going to a class for six weeks or having some quick fix which is what we want to do 
And we kept doing these quick fixes over and over again, and then we have these very uh, you know, fuzzy churches. <laughs> that, uh, so I think it's, it's just a matter of just hanging in there. And President, I would say, you could find three other people, engage them, demonstrate uh, and the results. Demonstrate results. And, and so, okay, so I'm gonna, with, with that phrase up there, without the upper room, the lower room goes nowhere. And I'm saying, this is all about relationship. Yeah, this is a, disciples are made in relationship. And I know we have, I could go through this biblical material, which I won't, because uh, we don't have time um, to, to do that. But I want to just to remind you of what a microgroup is. And so here's our, our working definition. Dan, were you going to do this part? I was. Yeah, come on up. And, and then we'll kind of, Dave, do a little bit on the uh, invitation. How do you invite somebody into a, a microgroup? So, okay. Okay. Yeah. Is this Good. Yeah. Should be in the outline. It's in the outline. Yeah. He said on the outline. Yeah. You have. You have it. Well, that's in the hospital for you. Yeah, it's in there somewhere. Oh yeah. no, this is not. This hospital comes up twice. This yeah, is, comes up this twice. Is the invitation. This is yeah. him. You're gonna have to come back to the next breakout session to hear Dan's explanation. <laughs> well, here's the characteristics. So. Yeah. But the personal invite. Okay. You may get a repeat of some of this, but Greg mentioned earlier about small groups, the synchronization, and the, so here I am on Sunday morning, you're in my congregation. We're going to start a new discipleship program. Sign up. Okay? Upper level church, or higher room church. Lloyd, good morning. Good to see you. I have been praying that God would place some men on my heart. I'm looking for two to three men who would meet with me on a weekly basis for a year to help me grow in my walk with Christ. Would you consider being one of those men? No, it'd be an honor. What's the difference between that invitation and this invitation? The relationship. Mm -hmm. Personal. There you go. Yeah, it's, it's simple but a profoundly different kind of experience. When you're looking somebody in the eye and saying, I've been praying about this and God's put you on my heart and I want to start a journey together with you and a couple of others because I need it. And uh, I need to always be in an accountability relationship and growing together like that. That's a, such a trend, transformative uh, experience. Okay, in the later, later part of our time here, I want to go back to, well... I want to tell you a little bit about my introduction and my experience with quad discipleship groups uh, and using the discipleship essentials. This is Bob Marvel. Give you a little bit of a backstory. I grew up in church. My dad was a pastor. Grew up going to Sunday school, going to something very similar to Awana. Uh, Spent every summer uh, in vacation Bible school. As I got older, I went to youth group. I've been in one-on-one discipleship uh, groups where I was being discipled. I've discipled individuals in one-on-one groups. I've been in men's Bible studies, couples, small groups, all these for discipleship. The purpose is for spiritual growth. And I want to uh, suggest that possibly the quads and the discipleship essentials may take things to a next level. I was first introduced to this by a man named Ralph Rittenhouse. Some of you know Ralph. We refer to him as the quad father around here. It was either going to be the quad father or quadzilla. Decided to go with quad father. But I knew him years ago uh, because he was a senior pastor in Camarillo, California. His church there was a host of the Leadership Summit, as was Cornwall. So we would meet each other and see each other uh, at 
Oops. Well, I don't have the time to reset all that. So, well, I'm sorry about that, <laughs> that little disruption. That may be, um, let's see, I gotta get back to our PowerPoint. You've got your outlines. Um, so if you're on, on the outline for the day, we'll just pick it up there in terms of what you have in terms of content. No, well, I don't. Um, so we're on page what? five. Page five, okay. And looking at um, the contrast between relational discipling making and program. So if you can look at page five in your notes and pick up where we are here. So discipling relationships are marked by intimacy, whereas programs tend to be focused on information. So we've already talked about that a bit, but uh, so I want the contrast here is relationship, the context of that. So it's not just about information transfer that does not lead to transformation, but about a relational context. And I, I love the way Alyssa Britt Scholl talks about discipling relationships as purposeful proximity, purposeful proximity. She puts it this way, how easy it is to substitute informing people for investing in people, to confuse organizing people with actually discipling people. Life is not the offspring of program or paper. Life is the offspring of life. And I, I know I, I first uh, was introduced to this uh, as a sophomore in college when I had a seminary student, a seminary student who was leading our junior high ministry, invited me into relationship with himself and would sit with me and, and share his life with me. And the transference that occurred there uh, was that if you're going to have an impact upon people, you've got to get close to them and be with them over a period of time. So this is never a quick fix, you know, it's, it's a walking alongside somebody over a period of time and seeing what happens in their life. Second uh, point there is discipleship relationships involve full mutual participation, whereas programs are one or few doing for the many. Uh, Ralph Rittenhouse was mentioned in that last video. Ralph is my co-partner here in this ministry, uh, and he would normally be here. But we both came back from uh, Zambia and Ralph came back not feeling well. And so he's back at the hotel and uh, not able to speak. He's got a very difficult voice at this point. So, but he's written something here that I think is so powerful. I'm going to read his own words. So act as if Ralph is present here at this moment. So he, uh, he wrote something called Discovery, Not Dictation. Why are the microgroups we talk about in GDI so effective for accelerating authentic spiritual growth? And here it says, for 25 years as pastor, I depended on dictation. I studied hard all week then stood on the platform on Sunday to excitedly share what I had learned from God's word. I provided note-taking outlines and worship program to assist sincere learners. After more than two decades of this, we took a congregational survey to determine how much of fundamental orthodox doctrine the congregants really understood. I was shocked. Not only was there still great confusion, but things they did, did seem to understand couldn't be intelligently and communicated, articulated uh, with someone else. I remember the Sunday I stood before the congregation and told them, if you have to make a choice to come to hear me preach or go to your discipleship quad, go to your quad. You'll learn much more from the 90 minutes of preparation and 90 minutes of interaction with your quad than I'll be able to teach you in a month of Sundays. Why? In a discipleship microgroup, each person is encouraged to dig into the scripture and discover truths. Each comes to share their discoveries with the group. The Holy Spirit is the teacher. The Bible is the text. 
No one carries the responsibility of teaching everyone else. Everyone is trusted to contribute to each, each session. Multiple sharing enriches everyone. The truth is discovered and defined in community. What are the benefits? Truth is discovered more easily when truth, truth discovered truth is more easily remembered truth. Truth defined in community is more accurate truth. Truth shared builds relational bonds. God's truth shared builds lasting relationships. Tight group relationship uh, increases individual strength. Individual articulation of God's truth cements it in the heart. Collective accountability ensures application and change. Discovery, not dictation, accelerates authentic transformation. So I think that's a wonderful summary of the contrast between the two. So idea that discipling relationships involve full mutual participation. So if you're coming to a microgroup, you've prepared a lesson. You've studied the word yourself. You've come ready to share what you are learning. You are then hearing from each other what others have discovered. And you're teaching one another under the you know inspiration of the Spirit. And if somebody goes off track a little bit in terms of what they think they know, uh, you can it becomes self-corrective. You know, you allow it to do that in the group. So the whole the whole thing is, you know, you get out what you put into it, right? And uh, so if you don't put much in, you're not going to get much out, and that's the story of our church. You know, that's it, people. Uh, number three on that list is discipling relationships are customized to the unique growth challenges of the individuals, whereas programs emphasize synchronization and regimentation. I already focused on that. So uh, let me just give you the uh, one story of one of the microgroups I had that gives you the sense of the uniqueness of each individual. Uh, one of my favorite groups was a very intergenerational group. Uh, we had a man in his early 30s, a man in his 40s, a man in his 50s, and me. Uh, so then went this generation. So Billy was the, the younger guy in his 30s. Uh, our group started uh, one month before he got married. So uh, he got married, and he would say to us later on, after he got to know us a little bit better, he said, uh, I didn't realize, I didn't know why I got involved in a group of such old, I think he used the word farts, old farts. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and then he got married. <laughs> and, uh, and then Billy was this very emotional, tall, thin guy. He would show up after having some confrontation with his wife, the night before and be emoting all over the place in terms of his early marriage. And we would have to calm him down and you know, kind of guide him in a direction. Nine months after he got married, what happened? What usually happens in nine months? A child comes along. Then he really realized why he needed this group to be a part of him. So he had that, those challenges right away. Ron was the guy in his 40s. Uh, Ron had a, a big challenge in his life because he was the oldest of six children. His father was a flaming alcoholic, a very violent man, beat his mother. And, uh, and Ron would say, my discipleship challenge is trusting God as my father. Because I, I hate my father from what he had done, done to me and uh, to, to his own mother. So that was a constant part of our conversation. How do you get to that place where God God can reparent you, which is what God the Father is. We get a parent that is actually wise and loving and caring uh, in our. Uh, the next level up was Dave. He was in his uh, 50s, uh, seasoned Christian, well-respected. And uh, he was going through what we call that you know, midlife halftime experience of moving from success to significance. 
He'd been involved in the insurance business for 30 years, had a very successful insurance business, but he was saying, ah, this is all there is to life, is, and is this kind of work. And then he got a sense of call to a new ministry uh, during that time. It was called C12, which was helping Christian CEOs uh, run their business as Christians. And he was contemplating that transition out of his one life into another. And it was a joy to be able to be in a group with him as he was trying to sense God's call. And he'd be share with us increments at a time in terms of how this was drawing him in. And But to do it, he had to leave the safety net of his insurance business and finance to start a for-profit new business. Um, and it was just a delight to be able to listen to him in terms of that sense of call that was merging in his life and see him make that transition out. Um, where else would he have been able to do that? I was going through some health challenges at the time. I was diagnosed with prostate cancer of a very virile type. And uh, boy, was it a pleasure to have these guys invested in my life and leave phone messages encouraging me as I had my surgery and recovery from that, that surgery um, to be having them walking alongside me during that time. Uh, I always say that uh, if you're meeting for a year, a year and a half, there's going to be somebody in that group that's going to have a fairly you know, life-challenging experience going on, some form of crisis. You know, it could be unemployment, it could be financial problems, it could be a child that's gone off the rails, whatever it may be. And you have that chance to be there for people, walk alongside each other during difficult times. So that the highly relational uh, kind of approach to things. And then finally, um, discipling relationships focus on accountability around life change, whereas programs focus accountability on program content. Uh, so uh, that's what we've been stressing this whole time. Of, you know, can you even get to that place of mutual confession in your life? When we talk about some stages that you go through in these development. One is you're kind of starting at the stage of encouragement or affirmation. You know, people are getting into a new group and they may not know each other very well. And uh, there may be some anxiety and nervousness. Okay, I'm going to spend a year, a year and a half with these people that I don't know that well. And what's that going to be like? You know, so you want to start with sharing some stories of your life. I oftentimes don't even get into the content uh, of my groups until we've had a chance to tell this, our faith journey story. Or if you're all married, you know, say some, tell us some embarrassing moment during your courtship. You know, let's laugh at each other. You know, during during that time, uh, and then the walking through each other with each other through difficult times, uh, deep listening experiences, and what you're trying to move towards is a deep trust with each other because we each have areas of our life that we keep hidden in ourselves that are holding us up. And if you can get to that place where you can reveal some of those places of darkness and what we call besetting sins that have bugged us for a long period of time, it gets it out of that darkness into the light and be able to confess uh, to one another and hear from one another uh, that we have been forgiven. Have you ever had the opportunity to, yeah. to say to somebody after they've shared something that they've been holding in you know, and looking them in the eye and say, I want you to know in the name of Jesus Christ. You are forgiven. And uh, to have that opportunity to, to say that to each other. So we're trying to get down to, to that level, you know, in terms of our, our life together and our context for that. So uh, program versus relationship. Uh, so why 
doesn't program deliver transformation? Because they basically are non-relational. You're not going to go very deep with that. Okay. Um, comes close to the end of our time, so we still have a little bit more time left to talk. Yeah. Well, sure. uh, just started with the microcutting today. And talking about the programs, uh, I have to change my paradigm thought. As in, you have a curriculum of book, I think it's 25 chapters. You're right. You meet once a week. Right. To me, that's initially that's about 25 weeks will be done. No. Uh, <laughs> but uh, we're week three or whatever, we haven't finished the first. It's not lock, stop, you know, the nuts Let's do this, this this week, all of it. You stop, you live like, and case in point, Chris, um, worker, and he, uh, the hurricane hit. And uh, yeah. we spent most of our time just uh, praying with him uh, over the last few last days. Didn't get a little bit into the book, but uh, it, it, it can become a program. Someone can take your, your book. And make it a program. They can. You can turn so it into that. You need that. to change. You need to guard, guard that. And that's, yeah. that's where I'm coming. Relationship is the priority. You you go through the content at the, at the speed that people can absorb the content. Uh, you sometimes set it aside if there's, there's crises in people's lives. Because then attending to each other is the important thing to do rather than <clears throat> plowing through. Yeah. Let me clarify. Um, Chaplain, Lieutenant Colonel, retired from the military. Thank you for your service, Randy. He is a member of what we call a coaching micro group. He lives in Kentucky. Daryl, next to him, is in our coaching micro group. Uh, he lives in Illinois. And Chris, who Randy made reference to, is a pastor in Naples, Florida. Can you imagine what he has been going through? Yeah. We have stayed in touch with him. We meet every Tuesday morning at 6 a.m. That's what works best. What's a coaching microphone? Yeah. Exactly right. <laughs> they have read Transforming Discipleship. That's part of my requirements. And I'll spend 10 weeks with them at least. If eight to 10 weeks, 12 weeks if we need it, to help them get established, start a microgroup, and then help them understand the elements of a microgroup. We go through several <clears throat> lessons in Discipleship Essentials. Chris texting back and forth. Monday said, I don't know if I'm going to go make the group. We've just got so many things going on. I said, Chris, please join us long enough so we can pray for you. We got on Zoom at 6 a.m., and he didn't get off to close to 7. It, Chris began to share. There wasn't a dry eye on Zoom. He began to share. He said, I've not had a chance to say this to anybody. The stress, the anxiety. And we just surrounded him in prayer. It was beautiful. He had to get off and go on. But, man, you could tell. Guys, couldn't you tell? Just He was just empowered. All right? We didn't deal with the lesson that day. It wasn't about the material. Next Tuesday, we'll get to the lessons that we do life together.
Well, I hope that you enjoyed that episode. Next up, we've got more from Global Discipleship Initiative. We'll be hearing more from Greg Ogden for sure. So we have two more track sessions with them, and then we're moving on to another organization. I really appreciate you being a listener for the Disciple Makers podcast. If you're enjoying what you're hearing, please give us a like and a review wherever it is that you're getting your podcast. That would really help us out a ton. All right. Enjoy the rest of your day, and I hope to catch you on the next episode. See y'all.